Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. When my guest poet Shane McRae was in high school, he made what he calls a serious existential commitment to quit life. The child of a black father and a white mother, he was raised in part by his maternal grandparents, who were also white supremacists, who denied that he was black. By junior high, he was flunking out of school and didn't care much for anything, he says, besides skateboarding and music. Then in high school, he saw a cheesy movie that changed his life because in it, a girl read a poem by Sylvia Plath. He became profoundly obsessed, he says. He had an idea that poetry was either going to be the key to the rest of his life or there just wasn't going to be a key. He became a regular at the school library, poring over books about poets' lives. Plath's poetry struck him as sad, but the sadness, he said, somehow made him feel better. McRae dropped out of high school. He was a dad by the age of 18. He got his GED and started community college, eventually transferring to the University of Oregon, where he discovered his favorite poetry, Elizabethan and Renaissance English poetry. Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen became necessary, he says, to his conception of himself, his world, and his art. He went on to get an MFA and a JD from Harvard Law. Since 2010, McRae's written six books of poetry, including his most recent, The Gilded Auction Block. He's received numerous awards and a Guggenheim Fellowship. His is an extraordinary story, but McRae often speaks of the details of his life with what the New Yorker described as a judicial coolness that makes the details all the more devastating. Behind McRae's literary success is a story of the America we know exists, but would prefer did not. His poems are written in meter. He says he wants to adhere to rules, and yet they approximate the sound of the subconscious, as Amelia Klein noted in her review of his first book, Mule, for the Boston Review. Klein wrote that McRae's poems do what the mind does with words, when it isn't using them intentionally, but murmuring to itself consolingly and censoriously of its own imperfectly recorded history. For this episode, I talked to Shane McRae about his new role as poetry editor at Image. We also talked about depression, his love for Sylvia Plath, how the rules of poetry helped him to engage the infinite. Writing in free verse makes him anxious, he says, and how this connects to a spiritual path that led him from atheism to Islam to the Episcopal Church. Tell me a little bit about your religious background. Were you raised with religion? Were you... You, know, you were raised by your grandparents mostly when you were younger. Were they religious? No, they, my grandparents weren't religious um, at all. Although my understanding is that my family, historically at least, on my mother's side, was Lutheran. I did go to a Lutheran private school when I was in, I guess it was um, kindergarten, but that was only one year. Other than that, my family didn't, I didn't really grow up with any sort of particular religious from in in the midst of I should say a particular religious perspective except for what I would call maybe a generic Christianity when I was a teen my grandmother um uh, became a Pentecostal and around that time she became very anxious that I hadn't been 
baptized, um, she began to um, feel very intensely about this and she wanted me to get baptized. And this is one of the few sort of large scale fights, I suppose I remember with regard to my grandmother, which is that I wouldn't do it. When I was a teenager, I was at first a sort of inchoate um, atheist and then I became very um, strict about it for a while, for a few years. Um, and I didn't come to a belief in God until I guess I was, must have been my very early 20s. And um, from that moment, from, from the very early 20s on, from my ex- conversion experience, I was convinced that God existed, but I didn't know what that meant for me personally and what my relationship with God should be. And so I went through a couple of permutations. Um, I think I started with Taoism or no, I think I started with Islam. Um, and I was a Muslim for some years when then Taoism was right after that, but I was interacting with the Tao Te Ching, I think fairly early on. And then in 2005, um, I became Christian and that was when I was baptized. So I think it's interesting when I talk to artists, of course, I talk to a lot of artists who were raised in religious families, mm. but artists who really had no religious upbringing and, but always had a religious sensibility, kind of innate. Do you feel like you were that kind of kid? Maybe, but if so, it wasn't very um, specific. I think I, I think I had what I would call sort of general spiritual feelings, but um, they didn't have any real context um, according to which I could organize them. And they would, I wouldn't even say they were particularly Christian, although I had some vague ideas about Jesus and I suppose um, notions about a heaven and that sort of thing. So they were basically Christian um, ideas. And so the context, I guess I would say, yes, I did have a context, but it was a very disorganized kind of popular sense of what Christianity probably was. It wasn't something I devoted a lot of attention to. Why wasn't Christianity your first stop? you think? Well, um, I mean, my conversion experience was actually at a monastery. And so I guess um, it might have made sense for Christianity to be my first stop. I think, broadly speaking, I felt that Christianity was still was very um, close to and probably the aspect of religion that I was most um, disagreeing with or protesting when I was an atheist. And so I think that the turnaround would have been too dramatic. By that, what do you mean the aspect you were protesting? What aspect? Well, when I, you know, being an atheist, I wasn't necessarily, like when I was thinking about that there is no God, I was particularly thinking about there is no Christian God because that was sort of uh, the religious context um, as an American that I was sort of, that I was in. Too much of a turnaround to go to Christianity after that. But because Islam was from my perspective, where I was, a fairly, uh, a completely different thing. I was able to approach it from atheism in a way that it didn't feel as if I were just completely reversing myself. It was something I could still explore. Will you talk a little bit more about that conversion experience? Sure. So what had happened was um, I was living in uh, Salem, Oregon. There was um, this monastery in this town called Mount Angel, um, which was not too far from Salem. And one of the things about Oregon, at least the way Oregon used to be, I'm not so sure about the weather there anymore, but back when I lived there, while it rained a lot, there weren't a lot of thunderstorms. There wasn't a lot of lightning. I had been thinking about, I was interested in, in, in exploring um, 
uh, religion from uh, a perspective of belief in God, but I couldn't figure out what to do with that interest. I used to like to go to the Mount Angel Monastery just to sort of be there in the quiet. And one day I was going to drive up there and I made a prayer where I asked God, although it's sort of strange to be asking someone in whom one doesn't exactly believe. It's a little strange to be asking them for anything. But I asked uh, God um, if God existed to give me a sign. And um, from then, if if God were to give me a sign from then on, I would believe. So I drove to the Mount Angel Monastery. It was a, a drizzly day. It wasn't you know, raining hard, but there was mist. The Mount Angel Monastery is on top of a, I guess it's a mountain. Drove up to Mount Angel. I went to the gift shop, actually, to look up icons uh, and such. And when I left the gift shop, lightning had struck these two fir trees that were at the very top of the road. And so, and they had fallen across the road. Um, one on each side. So it was almost like I always envisioned it as arms falling across and I couldn't leave it. And so I took that as my sign and I went back into the gift shop. It was a Benedictine monastery and I bought um, a medallion of St. Benedict. And from then on, even though I didn't initially land on uh, Christianity, from then on I have, I've been unusually fortunate in that my belief in God has not been troubled. It feels very, very certain to me. And the question that I always had to wrestle with or had to wrestle with for a long time was how do I express that belief? I knew that it was going to find its fulfillment in some sort of organized religion or another, but I had to find the right one. What were the circumstances of your life at that time when that conversion experience happened? I mean, how old were you? What was going on? I seem to remember this happening in 1999. So I would have been either... 23 or if it was at the end of the year, 24. My daughter, uh, Sylvia, would have been um, either four or five. I had gone to a couple years of community college. I was about to start at um, the University of Oregon, where I, I attended the University of Oregon for a year. I was married, although I guess um, also I was in the process of getting a divorce. And I was otherwise, I would say, fairly idle. Does it feel like the beginning, that moment? It feels like a beginning, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that is the moment that I can mark my life in a positive way, really change. Um, mm -hmm. That was the moment where I found sort of direction as a person was when I started writing poetry. But the other change, the other significant change of direction or focusing of direction was that conversion experience. And, and your daughter's name is Sylvia. I didn't realize that. So mm -hmm. tell me about Sylvia Plath. Well, so... I first encountered Sylvia Plath when I was 15, and when I was 16 is when I sort of determined on the being a poet thing. But I started writing when I was 15. I was watching this, they were showing us a movie in my high school, and it was a, um, I always thought of it as an after-school special, but it wasn't, it was a real movie. Charlie. <laughs> At one point, um, the person who seems to have been the protagonist kills himself. His sister is, has been tapped by the school to do some sort of PSA about something, She's not supposed to talk about suicide, I know that, but she rebels and does. In the midst of her talk, she recites these lines from Lady Lazarus, uh, dying is an art like everything else, I do it exceptionally well. And then when I heard those lines, I was, as I said, as 15, I was 15 in a month, and I just thought they were unbelievably goth, and I was <laughs> desperately wanted to be a goth. And so I wrote eight poems that day that were all influenced by those lines of Sylvia Plath's. You said in another interview about 
reading Plath as a depressed teenager that it struck you as sad, but that that sadness made you feel better. And I felt like, yeah. what a great quote for every goth teenager yeah. to explain why we, <laughs> why we're drawn to that um, as depressed adolescents to a culture or music or poetry or even a fashion that expresses or um, gives some kind of window <laughs> that expresses that sadness in a way that we recognize and makes, mm. I, I guess it gives us a, it gives us a culture to latch onto when you feel so adrift and alone that, and that sort of existential horror of being a depressed teenager. So that was something that really stood out to me about, you know, that's why I listened to the Smiths alone in my bedroom every day. Um, Cause that sadness was the only thing that acknowledgement of sadness was the only thing that made me, made me feel better. But it is yeah. also why I was drawn to religion mm. and in particular to Catholicism because it was dark and it yeah. wasn't afraid of darkness. And you could walk into any Catholic church, I mean, especially at that time in the 80s and 90s, it's not so much anymore, but and see a giant crucifix with a dead man on it. Um, that all seemed very honest to me, mm. like stripping away of masks that everybody else was wearing. So I wondered if that attraction to, you know, wanting desperately to be a goth, wanting, you know, identifying with, a, with Sylvia Plath, if, if you see those things as, you know, on your spiritual path. I mean, I guess I've never really thought about it. The kind of Christianity that I've always been drawn to um, it seems to me as a Christianity that um, has a very hard edge, basically kind of a Simone Veilish kind of, and there's a way in which that's also pretty goth, um, although I've always thought of it as fairly realist. The urge towards goth things is an expression of a sensibility that I can follow through to my particular religious interests. You were also really into Elizabethan and Renaissance poetry, right? And yes. as at a young age, so you're going from being the kid in your room listening to Dinosaur Jr., right, and reading class, and then you become obsessed with Spencer's Fairy Queen. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I don't know how young it was. I guess I would have been about 21 or something. What had happened was, was that um, nobody in my family had gone to college, and I didn't know what college was like, really, except for I had some abstract sense that it was where the smartest of the smart people went. A few years after I dropped out of high school, I became convinced that if I wanted to have a career in the poetry world, um, I would need to go to college. And so in 1997, I enrolled in community college. And to prepare myself for this, because I thought that college was where all the smartest people went, um, I read poetry-wise the Western canon, one that had a really enormous impact on me was Spencer's Fairy Queen. Yeah, I found Spencer's rhythms in particular sort of haunting and maybe, I mean, yeah, kind of life-changing. I, I went from Spencer to reading this anthology called uh, Silver Poets of the 16th Century. And I discovered Walter Raleigh in that and I thought he was just the bee's knees. And so I just got really, really into Renaissance poetry. I'm not even particularly sure why it was the Renaissance folks. Um, maybe, there's a lot of gothishness in that work, <laughs> and that might yeah. have had to do with it. I mean, it wasn't particularly fashionable at the time. I think 
you know, is that part of being like an outsider of having a different background of coming to poetry from a different life path that makes it, you know, you don't know what you're supposed to be reading. You don't know what's cool. You don't know what's Mm -hmm. in fashion. So you're genuinely attracted to something that you just really love. Even if you came to it because you think this is what smart people read, which Mm -hmm. I definitely did myself over and over again, coming from like working class Louisiana and knowing and wanting desperately to be taken seriously as a writer, but coming from a background where that was not something people did, Mm -hmm. um, unless they were journalists, you know, they were like, oh, work at the daily paper and write obituaries. And that was a writer. So I just found myself identifying with that part of your, your, the formation of your taste evolving very naturally, but also you're like stunningly practical about things. (laughs) Like, I don't know that I would have occurred to me that well, if I'm going to be a writer, I have to go to college. And if I'm going to be a writer, I have to read the Western canon and I have to educate myself. Well, you know, I mean, I didn't, in Salem, Oregon, I didn't have, I'm sure there were plenty of poets, but I didn't know them. That meant for a while, sort of haphazardly, just grabbing books and reading them. Like um, what got me to reading Spencer specifically was this book I found that was about um, Renaissance perspectives on Native Americans. Um, and it featured, it was in the work of Spencer, Montaigne and Shakespeare, and I started reading the book and quickly became aware that I needed to read Spencer, Montaigne, and Shakespeare to really get the book mm-hmm. and everything by them, which it turned out was a lot of stuff. Um, but I, <laughs> I needed to do that if I wanted to understand this one act itself, rel- relatively brief text, but also that I would need to do that if I wanted to write. That seems to me to grow out of a real humility of knowing what you need to know, recognizing what you don't know. Yeah, I just think that's a a mark of humility and something admirable. I want to talk about how you came to write in in meter, and obviously that must grow out of this love for the kind of poetry you were immersing yourself in at the time. Why do you why do you write in meter? What do you love about it? Well, I think that that's probably true that it it, it in some ways grows out of the poetry that I first fell sort of deeply in love with, but. For a long time, including all the way through my MFA, I didn't do it. I mean, I wrote some poems in meter, but I was primarily, I guess, a free verse poet. That said, I always felt that the art was much, 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 much bigger than me. And that one way to try to respect it is to understand its history. Mm-hmm. I felt that even if I wasn't going to be writing in meter, I sh- if I'm going to really, if I want to, I guess, be able to feel comfortable or take the art seriously... Um, I needed to learn this stuff. I have a quote from you here. It says, when I think about meter, traditional meter, various metrical forms, it feels like I'm looking at something infinite. Mm-hmm. And I think it feels infinite because there are certain boundaries. Whereas when I think about free verse regarding my own practice, I don't get that same sense of infinite space, mm-hmm. infinite possibilities. I just get the panic of it all. That really seemed to me like an answer I could give to someone about why I practice a traditional religion it's not like it's necessarily protective there's something about the contours of it that helps yeah. me to enter the infinite whereas otherwise i would mostly sit around blindly panicking yeah i think that i would be in the midst of panic all the time if i were writing free verse whereas um form helps me to think um, um and so why i think of that as indicating um infinitude because i am helped to think about because I'm helped to think by form, I suddenly am aware of the possibility of thinking. As in free verse, I feel just generally lost. 
and so it feels like a much smaller space. You recently did an interview with Nick Rapatrizone for The Millions, in which you said, I find the mysteries of God overpoweringly attractive. Mm-hmm. When thinking about God, one inhabits a space in which one can think forever. Mm. That's nice. <laughs> that you ended that quote with, that's nice. <laughs> that's a nice space to be in, to inhabit mm-hmm. a space where one can think forever. But you also said in that interview that you don't sit around thinking about things smart people seem to think about. I don't. Which, which made me laugh. It's endearing, but you enjoy difficult poetry. You sometimes write difficult poetry. And an image where we are both editors, we sometimes publish difficult poetry. What, why and how should readers engage with difficult poetry? Wow, that's a... This is the kind of smart question that I, I'm ill-equipped to answer. For me, I find that my satisfaction often begins in feeling resistant to certain things. Mm. Poets who initially I feel like I have a fairly strong argument against. Not strong as in my argument is well thought out, but that I feel it. I feel my resistance to them, but I can't set my resistance down. It stays in my head. I keep returning to these poets that I find troubling or difficult, and that is the beginning of satisfaction. How you should engage with the work of difficult poets, or how you should engage with difficult poems, again, I think is also fairly individualized. It just depends on whatever techniques you've used to overcome similar difficulties in the past, honestly. For me, sometimes it has required putting a poem down for a long stretch of time and coming back to it months or years later. But really, what I think you're trying to engage with is your own pleasure, your own satisfaction, I think the why and the how are fairly intimately connected. Mm-hmm. If you feel the beginnings of satisfaction, you're kind of on your way. And I think that that's related even in conflict with the beginning of uh, pleasure. You know, the poets who I've found disagreeable and felt myself in conflict with, but have not been able to abandon, that wrestling with them is itself, I think, the beginning of a kind of pleasure. Could you name a couple of those? examples of poets that have challenged you or that you've kind of chafed against or poems poems that derive pleasure from i think that i'm still in the middle of a struggle with seamus haney i don't think i've reached the end of it and so i'm i i i I think about his poetry an awful lot partly because there has been i felt often not satisfied with it not happy about it but not dissatisfied in a way that has allowed me to leave it anthony hecht is another poet that I have had that struggle with for a long time. It may be that with Anthony Hecht, I just don't like it. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say. Um, I, and in the end, you may decide of the difficult yeah. poem or poet that I really just don't like this. Yeah, you can. But I personally feel like you should give it, you shouldn't have been, you should give it at least a good decade. Do you think that you're taking pleasure in something in an art form or an experience is dependent upon that wrestling, that necessity to you know, get in there and tangle with it? If something's too easily accessible or apprehended, are you just kind of bored by it? I wonder if there's a parallel there to your ending ultimately in a Christian church, your Episcopalian now, you know, a religion that initially was not appealing to you in the Christian God, not appealing to you. I wonder if there's a parallel there or if I'm, if I'm stretching. Hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense because There's a way in which I find thinking about human history and thinking about 
the Christian scriptures in particular, but um, the whole um, Bible, the Hebrew scriptures together, uh, or Hebrew and Christian scriptures together. I um, find that what I would consider to be their flaws, um, things that you have to think about, um, those are the things that make them seem true to me. Do you think of yourself as a religious poet? I mean, it's become something that has been more like in the air, but I don't think of myself in that way. Um, I don't, and I, and I resist thinking of any poet in that way um, with regards to any of those sorts of things. Like I am a poet who explicit, who only writes about BMX bicycle racing or whatever. <laughs> no, I don't want, I just want poets to be poets and think about poets as poets and poets have themes. The thing that scares me about being a religious poet is I worry that I would get to a point where I wouldn't feel like I was allowed to write about anything else. Like I wouldn't allow myself. I think I am informed by religious perspective that I take very, very seriously. Um, but I don't necessarily think of myself as a religious poet. You wrote about purgatory mm. and in the language of my captor and you wrote the long poem about hell and the gilded auction block and your next book you told me will be about heaven. Mm. So who's in heaven in your book in the next book in these poems? One of the difficulties I had when I was first starting the uh, Hell poem is I couldn't put specific people in it. Although there's a version of Donald Trump in the Hell poem. He's a giant beetle in the Hell. It's been difficult for me to place any particular people in these places. It's a question I haven't really thought my way to the end of yet. Mm -hmm. That I be believe really in this sort of popular ideas about what heaven is. I take my cues for what heaven is from, actually from N.T. Wright talks about it in ways that he points out are very they're biblically supported, which is that the afterlife is rather more something that happens with Jesus um, on earth after you die, that the new heaven and the new earth, you come to a new, ver you're, you're on earth and you live your eternity there, as opposed to heaven being some sort of separate kind of magical space in the clouds. The, as far as I can understand it, the most biblically supported version of it is basically a post-finite lifespan Earth. That's so interesting that the biblically supported view is the less fantastic yeah. and the less sentimental. Tell me a little bit about how you conceive of angels in this book, because I feel well, like your conception of angels is also biblically supported and maybe not what one would think of. The angels in the book are, um, I think, pretty scary. The idea of angels being kind of cuddly, I don't know when that enters the Western imagination. Angels in the Bible are not cuddly. And angels in the Abrahamic tradition are not cuddly mm -hmm. beings. Like if you think about the angel that requires Muhammad to start reciting the Quran, Muhammad's interaction with that angel is no fun at all. Mm-hmm terrifying to me that's that idea of this angel as being this sort of very scary powerful thing it makes sense to me a lot of early christian writers talk about the gods of the roman world because this is the world that they're leaving and they conceptualize the gods of the roman world as essentially those were probably actually angels and so they're this kind of being that is definitely with regard to what it can do um beyond human. I like this idea of angels, again, being 
and like we see biblically Jacob wrestling with an angel, um, mm. an angel, not necessarily as adversarial, but as something that has to be encountered and grappled with literally <laughs> yeah. at times to rest that blessing or understanding from. Yeah. So a terror that is not entirely unapproachable. No, I think that's very real. I think that mm-hmm. particularly in Western culture and modernity, we tend to think of terror as equaling evil. And that's not necessarily true. Mm. Angels are very terrifying. And I think that God can produce this terrifying thing without meaning that God has made a thing that is evil. That's, you know, God's, you know, the God's self is in in a way terrifying. But if one is not afraid of God, I think you're not thinking very hard (laughs) about what God is. you to read Lord of the Hopeless Also Dear, which originally appeared in Image 54 and was included mm-hmm. in your in your first book, in Mule? It was included right? in Mule. Could you give us a little background on it? Um, yeah. So Lord of the Hopeless Also Dear, um, it was when I was figuring out that I wanted to write, you know, in meter, um, when I, it came very quickly after changing my style, essentially. And it is an Elizabethan sonnet, considerably more strict than I tend to be now. The rhymes are more spot on than they are nowadays. But it is just about, I was writing all of these sonnets um, and I imagined, although I don't think I imagined it thoroughly enough, I imagined that the speakers were in hell. You want me to just read it? Yeah, I'm ready when you are. Okay. (laughs) I haven't read this poem out loud in, hold on, wait, probably nine years. Wonderful. Lord of the hopeless, also dear, hat soak, hole in the canal, and red tie, father, son, and holy ghost not in that order break the rottenness of those who torture one of thy least wrath-deserving exiles me, not wholly undeserving, no, but some. And isn't it the sun that counts with thee, O gondola also, as the trees pass warm overhead I can close my eyes and they are almost not burning and this is any river to the sea, O Lord, I do not say, release me, call me home, forgive my many sins. I say, Lord, forgive my torturers who hate my faults as if my faults were theirs. You've been listening to The Image Podcast, produced by Roy Salmon and Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. For more information and to subscribe to the print journal, please visit The Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can also learn more about each episode of this podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the print journal through the Image Archive. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash image podcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content, and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, 
and mystery.